Act One of Justice by John Galsworthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Justice. Persons of the Play. James Howe, Solicitor. Read by Larry Wilson. Walter Howe, Solicitor. Read by Matthew Rees. Robert Coxon, their managing clerk. Read by Algy Pag. William Folder, their junior clerk. Read by Eddie Othman. Sweedle, their office boy. Read by April 6090. Worcester, a detective. Read by Alan Mapstone. Cowley, a cashier. Read by Sean Clayton. Mr. Justice Floyd, a judge. Read by Alan Mapstone. Harold Cleaver, an old advocate. Read by Phil Schampf. Hector Froome, a young advocate. Read by Thomas Peter. Captain Danson, V.C., a prison governor. Read by Todd. The Reverend Hugh Miller. A prison chaplain. Read by Adrian Stevens. Edward Clement, a prison doctor. Read by Andrew Hunt. Wooder, a chief warder. Read by Son of the Exiles. Moni, convict. Read by Alan Mapstone. Clifton, convict. Read by Chris Pyle. O'Cleary, convict. Read by Eddie Offman. Ruth Honeywell, a woman. Read by Anne B. Sweet, 13. A number of barristers, solicitors, spectators, ushers, reporters, jurymen, warders, and prisoners. Read by Andrew Gotts. Read by David Purdy. Stage directions, read by Michael Maggs. Time, the present. Act 1. The Office of James and Walter Howe, Morning, July. Act Two, Assizes, Afternoon, October. Act Three, A Prison, December. Scene One, The Governor's Office. Scene Two, A Corridor. Scene Three, A Cell. Act Four, The Office of James and Walter Howe, Morning, March, Two years later. Act One. The scene is the managing clerk's room at the offices of James and Walter Howe on a July morning. The room is old-fashioned, furnished with well-worn mahogany and leather, and lined with tin boxes and estate plans. It has three doors. Two of them are close together in the centre of a wall. One of these two doors leads to the outer office, which is only divided from the managing clerk's room by a partition of wood and clear glass, and when the door into this outer office is opened, there can be seen the wide outer door leading out onto the stone stairway of the building. The other of these two centre doors leads to the junior clerk's room. The third door is that leading to the partner's room. The managing clerk 
Coxon is sitting at his table, adding up figures in a passbook and murmuring their numbers to himself. He is a man of sixty, wearing spectacles, rather short, with a bald head and an honest pug-dog face. He is dressed in a well-worn black frock-coat and pepper-and-salt trousers. And five's twelve, and three, fifteen, nineteen, twenty-three, thirty-two, forty-one, and carry four. He ticks the page and goes on murmuring. Five, seven, twelve, seventeen, twenty-four, and nine, thirty-three, thirteen, and carry one. He again makes a tick. The outer office door is opened, and Sweedle, the office boy, appears, closing the door behind him. He is a pale youth of sixteen, with spiky hair. Coaxon, with grumpy expectation. And carry one. There's a party wants to see Falder, Mr. Coaxon. Five, nine, sixteen, twenty-one, twenty-nine, and carry two. Send him to Morris's. What name? Honeywell. What's his business? It's a woman. A lady? No, a person. Ask her in. Take this passbook to Mr. James. He closes the passbook. Sweetle, reopening the door. Will you come in, please? Ruth Honeywell comes in. She is a tall woman, twenty-six years old, unpretentiously dressed, with black hair and eyes, and an ivory-white, clear-cut face. She stands very still, having a natural dignity of pose and gesture. Sweedle goes out into the partner's room, with the passbook. Coaxon, looking round at Ruth. The young man's out. Suspiciously. State your business, please. Ruth, who speaks in a matter-of-fact voice, and with a slight West Country accent. It's a personal matter, sir. We don't allow private callers here. Would you leave a message? I'd rather see him, please. She narrows her dark eyes and gives him a honeyed look. Coaxon, expanding. It's all against the rules. Suppose I had my friends here to see me. It'd never do. No, sir. Coaxon, a little taken aback. Exactly. And here you are, wanting to see a junior clerk. Yes, sir. I must see him. Coaxon, turning full round to her with a sort of outraged interest. But this is a lawyer's office. Go to his private address. He's not there. Coaxon, uneasy. Are you related to the party? No, sir. Coaxon, in real embarrassment. I don't know what to say. It's no affair of the office. But what am I to do? Dear me, I can't tell you that. Sweedle comes back. He crosses to the outer office and passes through into it, with a quizzical look at Coaxon, carefully leaving the door an inch or two open. Coaxon, fortified by this look. This won't do, you know. This won't do at all. Suppose one of the partners came in. 
an incoherent knocking and chuckling is heard from the outer door of the outer office. Sweedle, putting his head in. There's some children outside here. They're mine, please. Shall I hold them in check? They're quite small, sir. She takes a step towards Coxon. You mustn't take up his time in office hours. We're a clerk short as it is. It's a matter of life and death. Coxon, again outraged. Life and death? Here is Falder. Falder has entered through the outer office. He is a pale, good-looking young man with quick, rather scared eyes. He moves towards the door of the clerk's office and stands there irresolute. Well, I'll give you a minute. It's not regular. Taking up a bundle of papers, he goes out into the partner's room. Ruth, in a low, hurried voice. He's on the drink again, Will. He tried to cut my throat last night. I came out with the children before he was awake. I went round to you. I've changed my digs. Is it all ready for tonight? I've got the tickets. Meet me at 11.45 at the booking office. For God's sake, don't forget we're man and wife. Looking at her with tragic intensity. Ruth. You're not afraid of going, are you? Have you got your things? And the children's? Had to leave them for fear of waking Honeywell. All but one bag. I can't go near home again. Folder, wincing. All that money? Gone for nothing? How much must you have? Six pounds? I could do with that, I think. Don't give away where we're going. As if to himself. When I get out of there, I mean to forget it all. If you're sorry, say so. I'd sooner he killed me than take you against your will. Folder, with a queer smile. We've got to go. I don't care. I'll have you. You've just to say, it's not too late. It is too late. Here's seven pounds, book an office, 11.45 tonight. If you want what you are to me, Ruth. Kiss me. They cling together passionately, then fly apart just as Coxon re-enters the room. Ruth turns and goes out through the outer office. Coxon advances deliberately to his chair and seats himself. This isn't right, Folder. It shan't occur again, sir. It's an improper use of these premises. Yes, sir. You quite understand. The party was in some distress. And having children with her, I allowed my feelings. He opens the door and produces from it a tract. Just take this. Purity in the home. It's a well-written thing. Folder, taking it with a peculiar expression. Thank you, sir. And look here, Folder, before Mr. Walter comes, have you finished up that cataloguing Davis had in hand before he left? I shall have done with it tomorrow, sir. For good. It's over a week since Davis went. Now, it won't do, Folder. You're neglecting your work for private life. I shan't mention about the party having called, but... Folder, passing into his room... Thank you, sir. Coxon stares at the door through which Folder has gone out, then shakes his head, and is just settling down to write when Walter Howe comes in through the outer office. He is a rather refined-looking man of thirty-five, with a pleasant, almost apologetic voice. Good morning, Coxon. Morning, Mr. Walter. My father here? Coxon. 
always with a certain patronage, as to a young man who might be doing better. Mr. James has been here since eleven o'clock. I've been in to see the pictures at the Guildhall. Coaxon, looking at him as though this were exactly what was to be expected. Have you now, ye yes, this lease of Boltworth's, am I to send it to council? What does my father say? Haven't bothered him. Well, we can't be too careful. It's such a little thing, hardly worth the fees. I thought you'd do it yourself. Send it, please. I don't want the responsibility. Coaxon, with an indescribable air of compassion. Just as you like. This right-away case. We got em on the deeds. I know, but the intention was obviously to exclude that bit of common ground. We needn't worry about that. We're the right side of the law. I don't like it. Coaxon, with an indulgent smile. We shan't want to set ourselves up against the law. Your father wouldn't waste his time doing that. As he speaks, James Howe comes in from the partner's room. He is a shortish man, with white side-whiskers, plentiful grey hair, shrewd eyes, and gold parsnay. Morning, Walter. How are you, father? Coaxon, looking down his nose at the papers in his hand, as though deprecating their size. I'll just take Bolter's lease into young Folder to draft the instructions. He goes out into Folder's room. About that right-of-way case? Oh, well, we must go forward there. I thought you told me yesterday the firm's balance was over four hundred. So it is. James, holding out the passbook to his son. Three, five, one. No recent checks. Just get me out the checkbook. Walter goes to a cupboard, unlocks a drawer, and produces a checkbook. Dick the pounds in the counterfoils. Five, uh, fifty-four, seven, five, twenty-eight, twenty, ninety, eleven, fifty-two, seventy-one. Tally? Walter, nodding. Can't understand. Made sure it was over four hundred. Give me the checkbook. He takes the checkbook and cons the counterfoils. What's this, uh, ninety? Who drew it? You. Walter, taking the checkbook. July 7th? That's the day I went down to look over the Trenton estate. Last Friday week. I came back on the Tuesday, you remember. But look here, Father, it was nine I drew a check for. Five guineas to Smithers, and my expenses. It just covered all but half a crown. James, gravely. Let's look at that ninety check. He sorts the check out from the bundle in the pocket of the passbook. Hmm, well, seems all right. There's no nine here. This is bad. Who cashed that nine-pound check? Walter, puzzled and pained. Let's see. I was finishing Mrs. Reddy's will... Only just had time. Yes, I gave it to Coxon. Look at that T. Why? Uh, that's yours? Walter, after consideration. My Y's curl back a little. This doesn't. James, as Coxon enters from Mr. Folder's room. We must ask him. 
just come here and carry your mind back a bit coaxin do you remember cashing a check for mr walter last friday week the day we went to trenton yes nine pounds look at this handing him the check no nine pounds my lunch was just coming in and of course i like it hot i gave the check to davis to run round to the bank he brought it back all gold you remember mr walter you wanted some silver to pay your cab with a certain contemptuous compassion here let me see you've got the wrong check he takes cheque-book and passbook from walter afraid not coaxin having seen it for himself it's funny you gave it to davis and davis sailed for australia on monday looks black coaxin coaxin puzzled and upset why this would be a felony no no there's some mistake i hope so there's never been anything of that sort in the office the twenty-nine years i've been here james looking at check and canterfoil this is a very clever bit of work a warning to you not to leave space after your figures walter walter vexed yes i know i was in such a tearing hurry that afternoon coaxin suddenly this has upset me the counterfoil altered too very deliberate piece of swindling what was davis's ship city of rangoon we ought to wire and have him arrested at naples he can't be there yet his poor young wife i like the young man dear oh dear in this office shall i go to the bank and ask the cashier james grimly bring him round here and ring up scotland yard really he goes out through the outer office james paces the room he stops and looks at coaxin who is disconsolately rubbing the knees of his trousers well coaxin there's something in character isn't there coaxin looking at him over his spectacles i don't quite take you sir your story would sound damned thin to anyone who didn't know you yes <laughs> i'm sorry for that young man i feel as if it was my own son mr james ah nasty business it unsettles you all goes on regular and then a thing like this happens shan't relish my lunch to-day as bad as that coaxin it makes you think he must have had temptation not so fast we haven't convicted him yet i'd sooner have lost a month's salary than had this happen i hope that fellow will hurry up coaxin keeping things pleasant for the cashier it isn't fifty yards mr james he won't be a minute the idea of dishonesty about this office it hits me hard coaxin he goes towards the door of the partners room sweetle entering quietly to coaxin in a low voice she's popped up again sure something she forgot to say to falder coaxin roused from his abstraction huh? impossible send her away oh what's that uh, nothing mr james a private matter here i'll come myself he goes into the outer office as james passes into the partners room now you really mustn't 
We can't have anybody just now. Not for a minute, sir? Really, really. I can't have it. If you want him, wait about. You'll be going out for his lunch directly. Yes, sir. Walter, entering with the cashier, passes Ruth as she leaves the outer office. Coaxon, to the cashier, who resembles a sedentary dragoon. Good morning. To Walter. Your father's in there. Walter crosses and goes into the partner's room. It's a nasty, unpleasant little matter, Mr. Cowley. I'm quite ashamed to have to trouble you. I remember the check quite well. As if it were a liver. It seemed in perfect order. Sit down, won't you? I'm not a sensitive man, but a thing like this about the place is not nice. I like people to be open and jolly together. Quite so. Coaxon, buttonholing him and glancing towards the partner's room. Of course, he's a young man. I've told him about it before now, leaving space after his figures, but he will do it. I should remember the person's face quite a youth. I don't think we shall be able to show him to you, as a matter of fact. James and Walter have come back from the partner's room. Good morning, Mr. Cowley. You've seen my son and myself, you've seen Mr. Coxon, and you've seen Sweedle, my office boy. It was none of us, I take it. The cashier shakes his head with a smile. Be so good as to sit here, Coxon. Engage Mr. Cowley in conversation, will you? He goes towards Folder's room. Just a word, Mr. James. Well? You don't want to upset the young man in there, do you? He's a nervous young fella. This must be thoroughly cleared up, Coxon, for the sake of Falder's name, to say nothing of yours. Coxon, with some dignity. That'll look after itself, sir. He's been upset once this morning. I don't want him startled again. It's a matter of form, but I can't stand upon niceness over a thing like this. Too serious. Just talk to Mr. Cowley. He opens the door of Falder's room. Bring in the papers and Bolter's lease, will you, Falder? Coaxon, bursting into voice. Do you keep dogs? The cashier, with his eyes fixed on the door, does not answer. You haven't such a thing as a bulldog pup you could spare me, I suppose? At the look on the cashier's face, his jaw drops, and he turns to see Falder standing in the doorway, with his eyes fixed on Cowley, like the eyes of a rabbit fastened on a snake. Falder, advancing with the papers. Here they are, sir. James, taking them. Thank you. Do you want me, sir? No, thanks. Falder turns and goes back into his own room. As he shuts the door, James gives the cashier an interrogative look, and the cashier nods. Sure, this isn't as we suspected. Quite, he knew me. I suppose he can't slip out of that room. Coaxon, gloomily. There's only the window, a whole floor and a basement. The door of Folder's room is quietly opened, and Folder, with his hat in his hand, moves towards the door of the outer office. James, quietly. Where are you going, Falder? To have my lunch, sir. Wait a few minutes, would you? I want to speak to you about this lease. Yes, sir. 
he goes back into his room. If I'm wanted, I can swear that's the young man who cashed the check. It was the last check I handled that morning before my lunch. These are the numbers of the notes he had. He puts a slip of paper on the table, then, brushing his hat round. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Cowley. Cowley, to coax him. Good morning. Coax him, with stupefaction. Good morning. The cashier goes out through the outer office. Coaxon sits down in his chair, as if it were the only place left in the morass of his feelings. What are you going to do? Have him in. Give me the check and the counterfoil. I don't understand. I thought young Davis. We shall see. One moment, father. Have you thought it out? Call him in. Coaxon, rising with difficulty and opening Folder's door, hoarsely. Step in here a minute. Folder, impassively. Yes, sir. James, turning to him suddenly with the cheque held out. You know this cheque, Folder? No, sir. Look at it. You cashed it last Friday week. Oh, yes, sir. That one. Davis gave it to me. I know. And you gave Davis the cash? Yes, sir. When Davis gave you the check, was it exactly like this? Yes, I think so, sir. You know that Mr. Walter drew that check for nine pounds. No, sir, ninety. Nine, Falder. Falder, faintly. I don't understand, sir. The suggestion, of course, is that the check was altered. Whether by you or Davis is the question. I... Take I... your time. Take your time. Folder, regaining his impassivity. Not by me, sir. The check was handed to Coxon by Mr. Walter at one o'clock. We know that because Mr. Coxon's lunch had just arrived. I couldn't leave it. Exactly. He therefore gave the check to Davis. It was cashed by you at one fifteen. We know that because the cashier recollects it for the last check he handled before his lunch. Yes, sir. Davies gave it to me because some friends were giving him a farewell luncheon. James, puzzled. You accused Davis then? I don't know, sir. It's very funny. Walter, who has come close to his father, said something to him in a low voice. Davis was not here again after that Saturday, was he? Coxon, anxious to be of assistance to the young man, and seeing faint signs of their all being jolly once more. No, he sailed on the Monday. Was he, Folder? Folder, very faintly. No, sir. Very well, then. How do you account for the fact that this knot was added to the nine in the counterfoil on or after Tuesday? Coxon, surprised. Here's that. Folder gives a sort of lurch. He tries to pull himself together, but he has gone all to pieces. James, very grimly. Out, I'm afraid, Coxon. The checkbook remained in Mr. Walter's pocket till he came back from Trenton on Tuesday morning. In the face of this, Falder, do you still deny that you altered both check and counterfoil? No, sir, no. Mr. How? I did it, sir. I, I did it. Coaxon, succumbing to his feelings. 
dear dear what a thing to do i wanted the money so badly sir i didn't know what i was doing however such a thing could have come into your head falter grasping at the words i can't think sir really it was just a minute of madness a long minute falter tapping the counterfoil four days at least sir i swear i didn't know what i'd done till afterwards and then i hadn't the pluck oh sir look over it i'll pay the money back i will i promise go into your room falder with a swift imploring look goes back into his room there is silence about as bad a case as there could be to break the law like that in here what's to be done nothing for it prosecute it's his first offence james shaking his head i've grave doubts of that too neat a piece of swindling altogether i shouldn't be surprised if he was tempted life's one long temptation coxon yes but i'm speaking of the flesh and the devil mr james there was a woman come to see him this morning the woman we passed as we came in just now is it his wife no no relation restraining what in jollier circumstances would have been a wink a married person though how do you know brought her children scandalized there they were outside the office a real bad egg i should like to give him a chance i can't forgive him for the sneaky way he went to work counting on our suspecting young davis if the matter came to light it was the merest accident the cheque-book stayed in your pocket it must have been the temptation of a moment he hadn't time a man doesn't succumb like that in a moment if he's a clean mind and habits he's rotten got the eyes of a man who can't keep his hands off when there's money about walter dryly we hadn't noticed that before james brushing the remark aside i've seen a lot of those fellows in my time no doing anything with them except to keep em out of harm's way they've got a blind spot it's penal servitude in nasty places prisons james hesitating i don't see how it's possible to spare him out of the question to keep him in this office honesty's the sine qua non coaxon hypnotized of course it is equally out of the question to send him out amongst people who've no knowledge of his character one must think of society but to brand him like this if it had been a straightforward case i'd give him another chance it's far from that he has dissolute habits i didn't say that I extenuating circumstances same thing he's gone to work in the most cold-blooded way to defraud his employers and cast the blame on an innocent man if that's not a case for the law to take its course i don't know what is for the sake of his future though james sarcastically uh, according to you no one would ever prosecute walter nettled i hate the idea of it that's rather ex parte mr walter we must have protection ah uh, this is degenerating into talk he moves towards the partner's room put yourself in his place father you ask too much of me 
We can't possibly tell the pressure there was on him. You may depend on it, my boy. If a man is going to do this sort of thing, he'll do it pressure or no pressure. If he isn't, nothing'll make him. He'll never do it again. Coax him fatuously. Suppose I would have a talk with him. We don't want to be hard on the young man. That'll do, Coxon. I've made up my mind. He passes into the partner's room. Coxon, after a doubtful moment. We must excuse your father. I don't want to go against your father, if he thinks it's right. Confound it, Coxon. Why don't you back me up? You know you feel... Coxon, on his dignity. I really can't say what I feel. We shall regret it. He must have known what he was doing. Walter, bitterly. The quality of mercy is not strained. Coxon, looking at him askance. Come, come, Mr. Walter. We must try and see it sensible. Sweedle, entering with a tray. Your lunch, sir. Put it down. While Sweedle is putting it down on Coxon's table, the detective, Wister, enters the outer office, and, finding no one there, comes to the inner doorway. He is a square, medium-sized man, clean-shaved, in a serviceable blue serge suit and strong boots. Coaxum, hoarsely. Here, here, what are we doing? Worcester, to Walter. Uh, from Scotland Yard, sir. Detective Sergeant Worcester. Walter, askance. Very well, I'll speak to my father. He goes into the partner's room. James enters. Morning. In answer to an appealing gesture from Coxon. I'm sorry, I'd stop short of this if I felt I could. Open that door. Sweedle, wondering and scared, opens it. Come here, Mr. Falder. As Falder comes shrinkingly out, the detective, in obedience to a sign from James, slips his hand out and grasps his arm. Falder, recoiling. Oh, no, oh, no. Come, come, there's a good lad. I charge him with felony. Oh, sir, there's someone. I did it for her. Let me be till tomorrow. James motions with his hand. At that sign of hardness, Folder becomes rigid. Then, turning, he goes out quietly in the detective's grip. James follows, stiff and erect. Sweedle, rushing to the door with open mouth, pursues them through the outer office into the corridor. When they have all disappeared, Coaxon spins completely round and makes a rush for the outer office. Coaxon, hoarsely. Here, what are we doing? There is silence. He takes out his handkerchief and mops the sweat from his face. Going back blindly to his table, sits down and stares blankly at his lunch. The curtain falls. End of Act One.